today, we're kind of, kind of, kind of, sort of going to conclude our story today. Uh, actually, next week is going to be an addendum as we look at a theme that's holding all this together. But we really will conclude the story of, of the Bible today. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn them to Romans chapter 8. We're going to actually read a little bit of scripture today um, in several passages. This one in Romans 8, verse, starting at verse 18 through 25, is going to be our foundational text. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to have one. We have placed uh, a couple of stacks under the center uh, aisles, under each chair in the center aisle, and you are welcome to take that, uh, use it during our service today, but also have it as a gift from us, so feel free to do that. Uh, one of the things that we uh, traditionally do is we read the scriptures out loud, at least as we start our service, and so um, I would invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 18 through 25. If you're going to use the Pew Bible, we're going to be on page 613. So here we go. Let's go. To, let's read together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we give honor to you and to your word today. We thank you for the gathering of your church. We thank you, Lord, for the, our worship today. And we thank you, Lord God, for the spirit of God that dwells with us to, um, to point us to Jesus, to, to change us to be more like him, and to... Uh, to indeed today awake us to a God that superintends over us and over his world and desires to be a God that dwells with us, ruling over us, but really a God that does all this because he loves us. So God, today um, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and, and eyes to see all that you would have us from these passages of, of scripture. God, we pray for those churches who are meeting in Kingstown and all over Alexandria that, like us, are opening the scriptures and talking about the good news of Jesus. God, we pray that you would open eyes, that you would open hearts to receive the good news, that you would change souls, pulling them out of the darkness of, uh, of, of hell and bringing them into the light of your son. God, we pray that you would do the same for us here, that we would be changed in the hearing of your word. We would be changed in your presence, God, that you make us to be more like you. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. And everyone said, amen. And amen. All right, guys, so we're in the, in the series called Story. And over the last three weeks, we have looked at the unfolding story of the Bible as God gives it to us, starting with creation, um, the fall, the resulting fall, based upon the disobedience of Adam and Eve in the garden, God's reconciliation of the fall through Jesus and the blood of his cross. 
We concluded last week really talking about that cross and in the context of story, you know, stories, they, I mean, they just they build up. Right. I mean, you're firstly introduced to the characters, um, the, the, the plot line sort of develops and then that story has a culmination. And if there's any any climax, to the story of the Bible, then it's Jesus on the cross. And it's, it's as if God took a, a tree lowered it down from heaven and put it smack dab in the midst of the chaos of the world that existed after the fall and really the the chaos that exists in our world now. And the blood of Jesus cross stretches across and provide it, it, it provides a way over the gap that's created because of sin, um, the gap between God and man, but not just. Does, the cross doesn't only reconcile God to man or man to God, rather. The cross reconciles the broken parts of the earth with all that it was meant to be um, in, in heaven. And so today we are going to conclude this story. We're going to conclude it by looking at this idea of consummation. Consummation is not a, I mean, we don't use that word every day. But uh, a simple definition of it would be the point at which something is finalized. If you're in business, you can consummate a business. Probably the most popular used definition or meaning of this word consummation is the idea of, of marriage. In most of the states, not all in the United States, a marriage is between a husband and a wife. And that marriage is legalized when an officiant, like a pastor, justice of the peace, signs uh, his name officiating that a uh, signifying that a man and a woman have legally, legally gotten gotten together and, and married themselves. They are married in the eyes of of the state of the government. In most states and really most of our culture, a marriage, however, is is consummated when after that formal ceremony, a husband and a wife are sexually intimate. Now. Obviously, all of us know intimacy in marriage doesn't mean the marriage is going to end. That would be bad. OK, but what it does mean is everything has happened to put that marriage in a context that it can carry on with everything that's supposed to happen after the consummation. And that really is what happens when we see the, the story of consummation in the Bible. When we think of consummation from God's story, really, we are thinking about how how the story ends. How the world ends, really, uh, you know, and we, we get that from books. We get it from from movies. We, we also get it from the Bible. We see how the how the story and how the world ends. But it, it doesn't quite end as in nothing comes after it. It ends from the perspective of God does everything to put the story, to bring it to completion, to so that it is ready to carry on for what comes next. And that comes, what comes next is obviously eternity. There, there really are two different extremes when we, whenever we talk about end times. The, the, the theological word is eschatology, the, the doctrine, the study of, of last days. And those two extremes are, I mean, you got some, some nut jobs out there, some people that are just, they're in it. They read books, they're, they're looking at government and politics. They're looking at all the tragedy and um, the stuff that's going on in the world. And they're trying to piece together on, you know, on just like charts and maps and stuff. How how all the things that we know of our world is going is going to end. Um, I think of, 
you know, last year the world was supposed to end because the Mayan calendar um, stopped in December. Um, everybody look, look at your watches. I mean, we're, we're all here. Um, obviously, that didn't come to fruition. You have guys like Harold Camping uh, is a theologian, philosopher kind of a guy. He's predicted several times over the years through a number of numerical gyrations that the world is going to end on a particular day. And through all of his predictions, he's never gotten it right. And, of course, then you have the, the man on the corner in the big city. He's got an A-frame on. He's got, you know, some verse in Revelation. He's got a bullhorn saying, hey, repent or you're going to go to hell. So that's the other extreme. And then on, on the other side, you got probably 80 percent of the world that's indifferent. I mean, they if the world's going to end, they don't even know it. They're just they're just waking up every morning trying to make it through the day. I would tell you as the people of God, as people who read their Bibles and and who are interested in not just God, but what God has to say for us and for his world this the, the the end times, the eschatology, consummation should bring us joy and, and delight and this interesting word called hope. We should have hope as God unfolds for us the bigness, the the totality of his plan for human beings and all of his creation. So that's the angle that I'm coming at today. Um, we want to leave here with a little bit of hope as to what God is going to do, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he's going to do as he consummates all the things that, that he began. Really, in our text, uh, Paul is reminding us that something gravely has gone wrong with the world that we live in. And we don't have to look any further than two weeks ago and really this natural travesty that happened in the Philippines. Think about that. 2,500 people dead Um, 11 million people uh, affected, displaced from what they call what they call home. You have really uh, widespread hopeless hopelessness and despair. And really, we have I mean, why did it happen? How could it have happened? Natural disaster that no one could have controlled much of that entire island nation in critical need of food, water and shelter and aid. And all we can do is look at it as it happens and then come to uh, just give uh, an offer of help after that thing has has come through. And this really is what Paul is saying in verse 18. He's saying the things that we experience in this life, the stuff that's happening right now that we are categorized under the the title of of suffering, suffering from the, the wide angle of experience that we um, that we see in our world, things like sickness and injury, natural disasters like what happened in the Philippines, financial loss, poverty, hunger, death, that those things, the ways that we suffer, what's going to happen in the future is going to be completely, completely different than what we are experiencing right now on the earth as, as people. And Paul really is encouraging us that while this present time brings an abundance of suffering, there's something that awaits us, and it's this neat word called glory. Glory. Greek word is, is doxa. It's a hard word to explain. It means the weight. There's, there's this, this a weight that's going to happen, that's going to reveal the goodness of God in his world. It's going to cover over all the, the stuff, the suffering that we experience now 
in this life. What is the glory that he's specifically talking about? I think he's talking about two things that he's suggesting in this passage. The first of those two things is that we can can look forward, firstly, to a new heaven and a new earth. The second thing that we can look forward to is the resurrection of the body. And, and, I mean, don't those things sound kind of like far off? Like, what in the world? A new heaven and a new earth? What would that be like? The resurrection of the body? I mean, what in the world? So God creates the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1, chapter 1. The Bible begins with this this beautiful picture. The world is exactly how God wanted it to be. Human beings are the pinnacle of his creation. Everything is in harmony with God. Creation is speaking to itself and working in, in cohort with itself. Animals are subjected to man who has dominion over them. And man is under the rulership. Of God. We have God's people in God's place really living in harmony with each other. And of course, that harmony is all destroyed by the fall. Adam and Eve do what God says not to do. And the result that happens on our earth with human beings and all of creation is, is sin and all that that does to disharmonize everything that God had created. And that really is what Paul is describing in verse 20. He says, for creation was subjected to futility. That word futility means pointlessness. Pointlessness, uselessness. Sin has affected more than just humanity's relationship with God. It's it's seeped into all that exists. Creation itself was spoiled and suffered decay. I think we picture here the thorns and thistles of Genesis Chapter three, uh, amongst the curses, first God cursed the serpent and he cursed the, the woman and he cursed Adam. And the curse on Adam was a curse on the ground. He said that the, the ground is going to produce thorns and thistles. It's not only it's not anymore going to produce naturally just uh, vegetation and, and, and things that are useful to you sprouting up from the ground. It's going to be a hard labor for you getting the things that you need to exist and subsist in this world to, to come up from the ground that you're walking on. We not only picture that, we picture the continuous cycle of, of life followed by death. Death entered the world. Death entered not only in human life, but the created order of the world because of sin. And it's pervasive. And I think this also means all the vanity, the meaninglessness that Solomon wrote about in Ecclesiastes. He says there's all kind of things in the world going on that just make no sense. This is what Paul is talking about here in uh, verse uh, 21 and 22. And so in verse 22, he says, all creation is groaning. He's he's personifying creation here. He's giving it a human face, a human voice, legs, so that we can sort of come to grips with what, you know, what creation is experiencing here. We were outside just a minute ago uh, fellowshipping. Um, Me and Blake and Caleb, who's learning to walk, is groaning. And I don't know if he was pooping out something or if he was just, uh, you know, kids. They just make sound stuff, don't they? But what is this? This I mean, we groan. It's it's the it's the sound. It's the sounds that we make when we can't articulate or express what's going on in the inner part of our being. And this groan is is kind of like the burdens that we feel from the weight of life that we are experiencing and not just our life, but the weight of life that we see around us. Creation is groaning, Paul says. 
It's groaning in anticipation of something that is yet to come. And what's that thing that's yet to come? It wants to be free. It wants to be free from the bondage of sin. It wants to be free from the corruption and experience all that God has promised way back in the beginning in Genesis. And so in verse 23, Paul says, not only creation groans, but believers groan too. You know, we're walking around feeling like creation, the weight of the suffering and all the plight of our world since sin came in and changed all of it, causing disharmony and devastation along the way. But what we're groaning for is we groan to see salvation, the salvation that God promised in the beginning of God's people dwelling with God in God's place come to fruition. We want to see that salvation bloom in our lives, not just in the future. And so Paul here is saying there's a tension that's created. There's a tension that we feel and don't know how to express. And because we can't express it, it, it comes up in us as a groan. It's like, ah, I, I, I know that there's something more than what I'm, ex- what I'm experiencing now. And what is it? And when you can't express it, it's like a groan that comes up. You know, verses later in a passage that we didn't read, he said the spirit also groans for all that stuff that you feel that's coming, that's going to come at some future time. So the tension that we feel because we don't know what's going to happen is it's like the this thing that's happened when we when we become a Christian. We are saved from the penalty and the power of sin, but we're not yet saved from the presence of sin. And Paul is saying Here in this passage, you know, God has legally adopted us as his sons. And we have uh, an an ounce of of freedom in that to know that we are a a, a guaranteed son of God. But we don't feel the manifestation of that or we won't feel it until some future time. This is what Paul is saying. And this is why we groan. So what Paul suggests in these in these verses in Romans eight is that one day God is going to renovate and restore not only our souls, not only our physical bodies, but the entire cosmos, all that we know about the world and and beyond. All will be put right. Eden, that perfect place that he made in the beginning, is going to be restored. This globe that we call Earth, our home, it's going to become what is it was always meant to be. Verse 25 says, and he and therein is our hope. And so what is the hope of the story of consummation? I want to put this in perspective. You guys like movies? Um, Our family likes movies. We were watching a movie last night, and it's a movie that was based upon a book, a book series. And we even bought the DVD. We've seen this movie several times. And this is the deal when you read a book and then watch a movie. Of course, the, the, the movie never can fulfill the, you know, just all the things that, that happen in the book. There's no way a, a, a director and a screenwriter can put all that stuff in there. But this really was a good depiction of the book to the movie. Um, when you read a book, I mean, you experience the emotion, the buildup of the characters, um, the anxiety, uh, the, the climax, what's going to happen. Someone dies, someone gets hurt, you know, something funny happens. I mean, you're just going, it's like a roller coaster, isn't it? So when you get to the movie and you know what happened in the book, I mean, it's kind of a letdown, not a letdown. But I mean, it's like, well, they left that out. They left that out. But it was still a good movie. But, what, you know, what happens when you either read the story over again or you read the book over again? Doesn't it take away a little bit of the fanfare? I think the same thing happens with consummation. God doesn't want to take away the fanfare. But this is the deal about what we get to do as people of God with this with this thing in our hand. 
we get to know how the story ends. And so like a, a story that you read over and over again, like watching, uh, like, like watching a football game where you know the outcome, we know the outcome of the story. And so we get to relax a little bit. We get to let life unfold. And though the first time we read a book or engage a movie, it might take us to the emotion of highs and lows. And we might have anxiety here and, and be in the doldrums uh, at a different place. God is saying we get to op- the opportunity to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because we know our labor is not in vain. We know how the story ends. And so though life has its challenges and its successes, we can we can we can see the end and we should not let go of our hope because that hope is going to come to fruition. I want to give you three hopes of the story of consummation, three hopes of the story of consummation. This is a huge topic. We can't in any way um, do justice to all that, you know, all that the Bible unfolds in regards to how God's story ends. But I want to give you what I think are three things that will will do it a little bit of justice. The first is a new heaven and a new earth. Go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. All right, we're going to be uh, turning in our Bibles a little bit. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. This is page 672 in your pew Bible. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Verse five. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. God creates the heavens and the earth in Genesis one one. He creates a new heaven and new earth in Revelation 21, verse one. John's writing what he's John is is seeing a vision of what's going to happen in the end. And John is writing. He's trying to put the, what he sees in words. And that's really why Revelation has a bunch of symbology and really some literalness in it. And we can't differentiate actually what's real and what's symbolic. But I think what he sees here is actually real. Okay, this, the part that he sees here is, is, is real. And so he's writing, showing us that the goal of God's redemptive history, that thing that God is doing from the fall of Genesis chapter 3 until sometime in the future is the restoration of fallen creation. Remember how the picture, the picture that we had of, of the Garden of Eden God's people, Adam and Eve, and all that would come from Eve's womb in God's perfect place under God's rule. That really is what um, uh, Revelation chapter 21 is giving us a picture. God is taking us full circle. The Bible is written in beginning, middle, beginning. Eden is the beginning. We're in the middle. Revelation is is trying to give us what the picture of, uh, of in a future time which takes us back to the beginning. I think the key word here is the word new. You see that? I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
Um, this is the Greek word kainos, meaning new in nature or quality. And really the thought here is that God is not going to, he's not going to barah, he's not going to speak and then create something out of, out of nothing. Ex nihilo, that Latin word that means something out of nothing, as he did in the case of Genesis, 1, uh, Genesis chapter 1, where he created the world in six literal days and then rested on the seventh. What he's doing here is he is qualitatively transforming what already exists into something new. And that new thing is a new picture of heaven and a new, a new experience on the earth that we are currently on. I know I'm shocking some of you all. Take a deep breath. God's intention is to re- remake or restore the first heaven and earth. He's going to eliminate the infection of sin He's going to take away completely the evil that exists in our world as we experience it today. He's going to not only take it from our lives and the world that we exist, he's going to eradicate it from the whole cosmic order. And then he's going to cause that to give way to a new heaven and a new earth where his glory and his people in his designated place are going to dwell. That's really what God is doing. Here's some notable things from Genesis, I mean, uh, Revelation 21, 1. He says in this first verse, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. All right, so that, there's, a, there's some uh, misperceptions about the sea. God is not going to take the, the water, bodies of water away. How do I know that? Well, in Genesis 1, there was a river running through the Garden of Eden, and, it, it, you know, that river did some good stuff. You know, they got a source of um, nourishment from it. It watered the ground, caused the plants to grow. In Revelation 22, if you read a little bit further, there's a river of life, and that river is going to go through the city of God. And so a river is a body of water, right? God is not taking away the water, okay? Actually, I think we're going to need water. Jesus, when he was resurrected, was on the, uh, you know, on the sea. The disciples were out in the boat trying to fish, and he comes and, you know, he cooks them a meal of fish. And I, I assume Jesus ate that meal with them, probably drank some water to, to wash it down, right? I think that our resurrected bodies are going to actually drink, drink, and eat food. But really what's happening here, uh, John is giving us the symbolic picture of ridding the earth of rebellion, chaos, and danger. He says the sea is going to be no more. I'm going to, I'm going to take it away from you so that you don't have to deal with it. Verse 2, John is, uh, let's read verse 2. I don't know if you can put that back on the screen. Put it back on the screen. Verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. What do you think he's seeing there? Y'all aren't talking out loud kind of people, are you? Um, Most people think that John is seeing heaven. He's not seeing heaven. All right, take a deep breath. (sighs) Let it out. All right. This is what it says. He's not seeing heaven. He's seeing a heavenly city. He's seeing a holy city. He's describing what many theologians think he's describing as the church, as the city of God. And it's coming down from the heavens and it's meeting this recreated earth. That really is what verse two is talking about. You know, contrary to popular misconception, heaven is not where believers spend eternity is. In verse two 
of Revelation 21, we find out that eternity is spent on a renewed earth. Renewed earth, restored earth, that beautiful thing that God made in the beginning, he's going to return us to at the end. And that's where you're going to, that's going to be your eternal home, folks. There are several heavens described in scripture. First of all, there's the heavens where the sun and moon and stars exist. We call that the, you know, outer space, right? (laughs) Then there's the heavens where the birds fly. We call that the sky. But then there's this heaven where the divine glory exists. Paul says in his letters that I don't know if I was in my body. I don't know if I was outside of my body, but I know God like ushered me up into the third heaven and it was glorious. So glorious that he won't even let me tell you about it. I can't even write about it. Okay, and so there's there's categories of heaven. And so the heaven that Paul is the, the, the writer here, John, is talking about when he's talking about a new heaven. He saw that God's going to repaint the, the the stratosphere, the the outer space part. And he's even going to possibly make the, the place where the birds fly look a little different. OK. And that's going to match this beautiful depiction of this renewed earth where God's people and all those Parts of creation are going to dwell. Most people use the word heaven to refer to a condition of peace, of great happiness, delight, or pleasure where people go when they die. According to the Bible, a heavenly city comes down out of heaven, and in verse 3, it says, God will dwell with his people. In Genesis chapter 1, God dwelled with Adam and Eve. We hear these words from from Genesis chapter three. Adam and Eve, although they had sinned, they were hiding from God. They heard the sound of God walking in the garden. Although they they weren't trying to be with him, you know, personification of God. God has always wanted to dwell with his people in this environment where his glory and them submitted to him would be the, the, the order of things. And God is returning Adam and Eve To this spot here. And then in verse four, he says, God is eliminating death. He's going to take away mourning. He's going to remove pain from our eternal existence. He reverses the curse that entered the world in Genesis. And he completely takes away human sin. And what a world that's going to be. You know, there's a lot about heaven that the Bible doesn't answer us. Think about this. I mean, what questions do you have of God in regards to eternity? I know, you know, my thought is, I mean, are you going to have my favorite foods there? Some of y'all wonder, I mean, can my animal come? Am I going to have animals? I would say in Genesis 1, there were some animals. All right, Adam and Eve were talking to them. Uh, I think there's going to be animals in a restored uh, heaven and earth. Um, will we know each other? What age will we appear to be? Some of y'all are like freaking out about that. I mean, I want to be like 23. Pow! I mean, I mean, what age do you want? I don't want to be 23. I think I want to be, um, I was probably in my best shape when I was about 33. I was something fantastic. <laughs> I was, I um, need to stop. All right. Um, will we know our loved ones? I, I think here's what we do know. God is coming back to make his home here. He's coming back to make all things new. According to our Bibles, our eternal home will be on this new earth. A literal time place um, existence where we will live forever. Heaven really is about getting to be with Jesus. God's people 
in a place that God designates and we're submitting willingly to his rule. All right. That's the first thing. The second hope that I think the the consummation story gives us is resurrected bodies, resurrected bodies. You know, the truth is some of us picture our our eternal existence in whatever the place is going to be. Heaven restored earth as like this Tom and Jerry kind of thing. Y'all remember Looney Tunes, Tom and Jerry? They'd have these sketches where something would happen, like Amber would drop out of the sky and just like, poo, plummet them. And they, uh, you know, Tom or Jerry has died, usually Tom. And then his body, his, his carcass is on the ground, but his body floats out, you know, his soul floats out. And then he goes all the way up to the clouds. And then automatically, uh, all of a sudden, he has his halo. He's issued a, a ukulele and he's, he's like sitting on a cloud, playing, singing songs. Okay, a lot of us have this, this Tom and Jerry kind of thought of, of our resurrected experience in this perfect place that God is going to take us to. And I can tell you that you need to just wipe that scene from from your mind because not, that's not really how it's going to be. All right. Turn to First Corinthians 15. All right. This is our next passage. It might be our last. First Corinthians 15. We're going to read this real quick. I'm going to start in verse 35 and sort of a lot of words. Go to verse 44. <clears throat> but someone will ask, how are the dead Page 625 if you're reading the Pew Bible. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of its kind of seed, its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star and glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What's sown is perishable. What's raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural, there is also a spiritual. In this passage, Paul is anticipating questions from the Corinthian church. And, you know, the Corinthian church, they were a little messed up. They, they were confused. They were a spiritual people, but they had some questions and some confusion about all the things that they were really spiritual about, uh, spiritual about. In fact, many of them doubted the validity of a resurrection. They were saying there's no way that this crazy stuff is going to happen. Ain't no way. And so Paul is anticipating that. He's answering this question to all those who are filled with folly. And he gives them an example from from nature. He uses wheat. He uses wheat and he says from this example of wheat that life can come from death. That's what he's saying. Life can come from death. And he equates this natural seed that dies, goes into the ground and somehow a miracle forms that it's nourished with what's going to happen in the miracle of the resurrection of our human bodies. The truth is our physical body is perishable. It really doesn't matter what you do to it. I know some of y'all are into eating spinach every day. There's some of y'all that do Pilates and you, I mean, you're like twisting your body, all, all contorting it. There's some of you that run every day. There's some of you that have very strict, no sugar, low carb diets. Good stuff. We, we are responsible 
for stewarding our body. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God wants us to worship, uh, worship him with our whole being. And he gave us these earth suits so that they, they got to last for several years. OK, until he gives us a new one. But I would tell you, you can try all you want. You can do all you can go and find a spring that has natural Hot water. There's nothing you're going to be able to do to stop the aging process. At some point, you're going to go into the ground. Your body's going to decay, and that's going to be it. Okay? You're going to die. You know, this death thing, it freaks us out. We don't know what to do with it. Someone dies, and we feel that, you know, that's one of those things we groan about. We put them in a coffin, or we, we burn them up. But, you know, we put them in a coffin. We put a suit or a dress on them. We put some makeup on them. We try and make them look like the image that we remember them when they were full of life. But one of the stings of death is to see a person that we love that had the vitality of life in them have that all sucked away. And and death really does have a sting. Of course, that sting is lifted by the resurrection of the dead. One day, the sting of death will be lifted. But in the meantime, we, we have to... We have to make sense of what God is, is telling us. So Jesus, fortunately, precedes us in our resurrection. I think God gives us a picture of Jesus resurrecting, of his afterlife on the ground, on earth with his disciples, so that we would have a glimpse of what life may possibly be like with us. Jesus um, went into the grave as a man. He came up out of the grave as a man, he existed on this earth for 40 days, talking to people like you and I about the kingdom of God. And then God took him away and he ascended into heaven as a man. And God is now at the right hand of God, interceding for us, enjoying the bliss of fellowship with the Trinity as a man. He'll always be a resurrected, glorified man. And I think the Bible gives us this beautiful picture of who Jesus is as a resurrected man so that we would have a glimpse of what our eternity, our eternal state might be. We'll always be live. We'll always live life as persons. Our spirits combined with our resurrected physical bodies, perfectly suited for the perfection of a new earth. Why do we need to be resurrected from the dead? Why can't we uh, why can't our bodies stay on the ground here on earth and decay and then have our souls like Tom and Jerry heaven on a cloud playing a ukulele, singing songs to God? It's because God is going to remake the beauty of Eden. And he had people there, perfected people, and he's restoring the earth to that, that beautiful thing. Our, resurrect, our resurrected bodies will never grow old. At least I don't think they will. They won't become weak or ill. They'll be physically attractive beyond anything imaginable. I, I, I don't know what Adam and Eve looked like. They, they were fully developed, anatomically correct human beings on the earth. They were perfect. They had all the things in order. They didn't have anything bulging out that wasn't supposed to bulge out. And it's, that's some good news for us, right? Because we aren't going to have to work out. I don't, I don't think we are. Um, we're going to lift weights. We're going to have to run. I mean, God's just going to like, pow, he's going to give it to us. We're going to be like looking dapper. But we're going to be looking dapper, not for ourselves, but for the glory of, of God that we get to serve. You know, there's many symbolic and literal descriptions in Revelation. Um, I don't think it's inconsistent for us to believe uh, for us to believe. Again, I say that we will eat, that we'll drink, that we will 
uh, carry on physical activities on the earth, much as we get to do now. You know, music is really a part of our lives now. It's a part of our worship. It's how we honor God with our words and with our thoughts. And I think that the artistic part of our world and those activities that, you know, that involve that will exist in heaven to the glory of God. I think that God intends man to work. He calls Adam to work in Genesis chapter two. I think that we will have work and commerce, inventions, creativity, technology and the like. I think all of that is going to be a part of our renewed earth and heaven and our resurrected body existence. Those are the first two hopes of the consummation. The third and last one is the kingdom of God. Simple definition of the kingdom of God. I've said it several times. I don't know if you've heard me. God's people in God's place under God's rule. That really is what God started in the beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden. A perfect environment. God created a people that would bear his his image in perfection, have dominion over his world. And he put them in this perfection of a, of a garden of Eden and they willingly submitted to his rule. That was life in the Garden of Eden. And in a sense, we can call that the kingdom, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a, a difficult topic to unfold in a few minutes. It, it really is. It's the rule of Jesus over his creation and his creation willingly submitting to his glory in the earth. And so we see really the pattern of the kingdom of God throughout the story of the Bible. Of course, it starts in in the garden. And then because of sin infiltrating human life and then going into creation, everything is distorted and devastated. But that doesn't mean that God hasn't always given us glimpses of this kingdom of God. We have to look uh, no, no far future uh, from the garden than, than Abraham. God calls a man named Abraham, and through Abraham, he promises to create a people. Okay, the the Jewish heritage is born through uh, a pagan named Abraham. And he tells Abraham, go to a place that I'll show you. That place ends up being the Holy Land, a place of God's own choosing. And he's going to this this man that God calls through a people that he'll develop through him, that he'll, his lineage, to a place that God calls. He says, I'm going to bless you that all the nations might be blessed. Fast forward to Mount Sinai. The nation has been formed uh, because of sin in the world. They've been submitted to slavery in Egypt through a guy named Moses. They're, they're pulled out of slavery. And at Mount Sinai, God covenants with them. I want to be your God. I want to be the king over my kingdom again. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to be ruled by me. I'm going to give you some laws. All I ask is that you obey me and worship me. And I'm going to then take you from this wilderness that you're in. And I'm going to bring you into a perfect place, a place where, I mean, this, the grapes are this, like this big. It's flowing with milk and honey. God's people in God's place under God's rule. Fast forward to the kingdom of, of David. It's a mini picture of the kingdom of God. You got the, a prototype of the Messiah, the king and his kingdom. And of course, David's sin with Bathsheba. Sin, of course, it devastates that again. And we fast forward into the New Testament and we have God come down in the form of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes not just with the authority of God. He comes in the authority of God. Jesus 
incarnates the kingdom of God on the earth. The king has returned to his kingdom. And Jesus, I mean, he not just brings us glimpses of God's kingdom. He he is the epitome of it. He, he brings it in full force. He reverses the, the curse of Genesis chapter two and three. What does he do? Jesus heals the sick. He raises the dead. He, he tells the wind to stop blowing. He causes peace to come over a storm. He heals people by the, by the spoken word and, and just by touching people. Jesus brings the goodness and the glory of God's kingdom to earth. Of course, Jesus goes and he dies. He dies to fulfill the plan of salvation, allowing God's people to to, to make a way, to bridge the gap, that gap that exists between their sin and a holy God. By his death and resurrection, Jesus did all that was necessary to put everything right again and completely restore God's kingdom. But he didn't finish the job. You ever notice? I mean, we're, we're, we're in this part of life called the last days. The last days began at Pentecost. Uh, Jesus had been resurrected. And he told those who were following him at the time to go to Jerusalem, God's place, and wait. I'm going to pour out the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is going to allow, uh, he's going to enter you, and he's going to change you progressively so that you might be more inclined to worship Jesus, that you might look more like him. And I'm going to be a deposit, the Holy Spirit will be a deposit in us to point or point, point us toward the future, that future when we would continue to be God's people, again in God's new place, worshiping him willingly. I'll conclude with this. You know, the story of consummation tells us that one day Jesus is going to return. He's going to come back. There will be a great division. It's going to be a great division of, of those who have not submitted themselves to Jesus. They're called his enemies. And they're going to go to a place called hell, Gehenna. And then there'll be those people who submitted themselves to to Jesus. They've submitted to his plan, the blood of his cross. They've expressed faith in in what he did, coming to earth to die in their place for their sin. And they will join the Godhead in a perfect place called the new heaven and the new earth. And then at last, all the, the promises that we read and hear of the gospel, they're going to come to fruition. They're going to be completely fulfilled. The book of Revelation describes a fully restored kingdom. God's people in God's chosen place, willingly worshiping and submitting themselves to him. And it's going to look like this. Every tongue and every tribe, people from all over who have confessed the name of Jesus. We're going to be in a beautiful place, a new creation. And we're going to be under God's rule, enjoying his blessing. In a sense, being under God's rule means that we enjoy his blessing. That's, it, it was like that way with the Ten Commandments. All God asked us to do was follow him, obey him, and he would give us the blessings of a glorious God. And so this story is destined to have a good ending. We're in the last days. We don't, I mean, we don't quite see what the ending is going to be, but it's a fairy tale for sure. A fairy tale that's going to come true. There's going to be... Um, Life everlasting is going to have a happy ending, and that happy ending will be one that we say, and they all lived, God and his people, in his place, happily ever after. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you give us this beautiful picture. A picture that you started thousands of years ago in a land called the Garden of Eden. And in that place, you spoke into existence this beautiful environment. And you put in, into this beautiful environment your creation, your created order. Human beings who you fashioned in your image and you gave the opportunity to rule over all of your creation. And not only did this created order exist in this beautiful environment, but you put yourself in the confines of it as well. You walked with your creation in this environment. Lord, we see in the story of consummation that you have always been a God who wants to dwell with his people in a place of your choosing. God, help us to see that. We pray that, God, that you would give us the hope that comes from Scripture, that one day a great and glorious God will make a way, that way is Jesus, for us to be in relationship with a God who's going to remake all that he made in the beginning. And in the end, we'll be the people of God in the place of God, worshiping a great and glorious God, submitted to him. What a glorious day. What a beautiful place. What a great story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.